Welcome to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. I'm Jeff Jensen. And I'm Darren Fradich, TV critic at Entertainment Weekly. And Jeff, I'm so excited to be recording this episode of a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks, in the midst of a very interesting time uh, in our history as a human species. Um, <laughs> what's, what's going Welcome. on right now, Jeff? Uh, apparently, um, there's a pandemic, uh, a, a global economic meltdown. People are dying and really sick, and hospitals are overwhelmed, and we're creating makeshift hospitals in, like, um, convention centers. And, yeah, like, we don't mean to make light of that at all. It is a very weird time to be doing much of anything let alone recording a podcast about Twin Peaks. Um, so I think on that note, for anyone who is tuning in right now, who is listening to us, um, we hope you're doing really well. We hope you're hanging in there. Um, we are, um, if, if you have families, friends, loved ones afflicted with this, you know, um, uh, you know, our heart goes out to you. Um, and we hope that... We hope this can bring some measure of amusement and distraction as you are hopefully sheltering in place, social distancing from everyone, making like the making like Harold Smith. Harold Smith is our new role model. Um, <laughs> in fact, I was thinking that would be funny if I was more creative, Darren. Um, like we should like do like a little quiz of like which Twin Peaks shut-in are you? You Ooh, know, are you, I like that idea. right? Like, are you are you Harold Smith? Are you Sarah Palmer in The Return, locked up in your home, only going out if you have to go, go you know, buy beef jerky or alcohol? Um, if you, <laughs> are, you, are you Agent Cooper trapped in the Black Lodge? You know, that, that would be a fun thing to do if I was in the mood for like really funny, fun things like that. Yes, yes. If I was in the mood for doing anything funny, I would definitely say that I am full-fledged 119 lady at this no. point. Uh, just, <laughs> just, just laying out drugs and booze in front of myself uh, while, while my child uh, stares out the window at the strange doings that's going on across the street. Um, yeah, Jeff, uh, you know, we are recording this, of course, because in the midst of everything uh, awful and terrifying and uh, kind of, uh, again, globe unifyingly freaky things that are happening, um, this, is, this week marks the 30th anniversary of the debut of Twin Peaks, a show that you've certainly spent a significant part of your life thinking about. Uh, I, I, I've spent less time quantitatively, but uh, quite a bit of time, especially in the last few years, talking to you about, certainly. Um, and uh, we kind of reached out to each other a few weeks ago. We, like everybody else, hopefully listening to this, uh, are currently sheltering in place. We're in our homes with our families. Um, uh, and uh, we decided that if uh, we can't necessarily do much to help with what's going on right now beyond just self-isolating, which is uh, a good communal way to participate in uh, the process, um, we decided we could do a little podcast to hopefully uh, satisfy people and fill up some hours. Uh, Jeff, I, I do think that with an eye towards giving the listeners what they really want and need right now, um, we should make this podcast last until the end of the pandemic. So I have about 
I have about 20 million things that I've been meaning to talk to you about with regards to Twin Peaks. I think now's the time to get to it, frankly. I think. You know, and, and I think we can do it. I think we can do it because that, that would only be just maybe an hour longer than our longest podcasts in, in, in the past. So like, I think we can, we can talk our way out of, uh, out we, of the pandemic. We decided, uh, you know, uh, listeners have been kind enough to, to indulge us uh, over the last couple of years as we have done annual shows uh, after uh, after, of course, doing weekly shows tied to Twin Peaks The Return, uh, we decided that uh, for this show, we would go back to the source material. Uh, we rewatched the pilot of Twin Peaks, which aired mm-hmm. on April 8th, 1990, for the first time. Um, we saw some ancillary material that we'll get to a little bit later that's very much tied into the pilot. Um, and, uh, you know, one place I'd like to kind of begin, Jeff, is just kind of to ask you generally, um, you know, what it was like approaching this pilot, what, what it was like rewatching the pilot for, I assume for you, this is certainly not your first, second, or even probably third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, or tenth time rewatching it. Um, but uh, what was it like watching it now? Um, we'll kind of save our thoughts on it with regards to the return for a little later, but just in general, um, coming to Twin Peaks, this uh, incredible beginning to a story that went a lot of different directions. Um, general thoughts and general takeaways. You know what was interesting is that by and large, this was the first time I watched the pilot since the return. And I think I came to it with a little bit of an attitude and even a worry or expectation that it, my experience of it would be completely 100% filtered through my, my, my experience of, of the return. And there, there were definitely resonances here and there that like, you know, that, that, that were there, but, uh, but overall what struck me was how easy it was to take it as a thing unto itself to actually forget about everything that I know that's going to come after this moment the storytelling that is done in the first and second seasons, the storytelling that is done in, uh, in, in The Return, even the storytelling that is done before in the prequel movie, it's actually really like easy for me. It was easy for me to just to connect right with this story and be in it and not think of anything before it or after it. Like, obviously it was, you know, like those things come to mind, but what I just want to say is that it was easy for me to turn that off and just be Mm -hmm. in this experience. So for example, like, you know, some, some essential moments, like, um, some classic moments of the pilot, like Sarah Palmer's grief on the phone, that whole phone sequence in which she's making calls as she's sort of like searching around, trying to find Laura, trying to kind of stifle her own anxiety, about like, oh my gosh, what's happened to my daughter? I know what's happened to my daughter, but please don't let it to be true. And then her just, her wailing. And then even Leland Palmer's grief um, when he's on the phone at, at, at the Great Northern and being informed. You know, we, we now know, we, you know, we've been dealing with the retcon of Leland in that moment for a long time. I mean, you know, knowing that he was possessed by Bob and that he was responsible for Laura's destruction, etc. You know, that moment has been reframed for a long time. Sarah Palmer stuff, of course, through return eyes is, is if, if you watch it through return eyes with all that knowledge, her character is greatly transformed. And yet in that moment, I have, I was just so connected to what Lynch, Frost and, 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 and their actors 
are creating these just in raw, indelible moments of grief. And I just feel it was just really easy for me just to connect all over again, as I did when I first watched it many, many years ago of this just powerful, raw, uncomfortable experience of a mother's grief, of Leland being shattered. Um, and it was easy for me just to forget about a lot of other return things. And so it, it, was, a, it was a semi-nostalgic experience too, Darren, because I remember the first time I watched Twin Peaks when it first aired, that, that moment when it aired, I was in Cape May, New Jersey, um, visiting my grandfather's sister um, on spring break from college. And I was supposed to have this kind of family reunion kind of thing. And like, I was like, but no, no, we got to hold this. Uh, I have to, I have to watch this David Lynch movie on TV. And <laughs> I, I remember taking notes while watching, I think I've told this story on this podcast before, but I'm taking notes because it was like, it was marketed to us as a mystery, a murder mystery. And if you follow the clues, maybe you could solve it. So I was taking copious notes. Um, and, um, and, and I, I wish I still had those notes, Darren. Um, but well, and like, cause, cause Jeff, you know, what's even crazier at the bottom of those notes you took on the very first night of Twin Peaks airing, you actually wrote, uh, her father is possessed by a demon named Bob. He comes from a place known as the Black Lodge. So that's, that's pretty remarkable that you guessed that. It was incredible how I guessed that right off the bat. And that was just a lucky, <laughs> that was just really just lucky guess. That's just me speculating wildly. Um, but um, yeah, all the clues were there, right? We, we really pieced it together. You could. Um, but like, so here I was just last night um, uh, watching it again taking notes again, but for a completely different reason, not trying to solve the mystery, but just kind of like, oh, like little notes, little funny lines and stuff like that. But that just sort of activity just took me back nostalgia wise. Um, yeah. So it was, it was, it was, it was a nostalgia rush. It was, um, but it was just also just really easy um, to connect with this pilot now more than ever as kind of Lynch and Frost doing this sort of like weird heightened reality soap opera murder mystery essay on like grief mm -hmm. and what happens to individuals and what happens to a town in response to a to a, a catastrophe that touches many lives. I felt that really powerfully. Maybe it's the circumstances of our time. You know, I, I remember texting you <laughs> when I was watching it last night and say, making jokes like, you know, um, you know, like just the examples of leadership in the town as these people were guiding <laughs> through Twin Peaks through this catastrophe of, of Josie Packer, Packard, like shutting down the, the main industry of the town so people can go home and be with their loved ones or the combination of kind of like Sheriff Truman and, and Agent Cooper, the federal and the local working collaboratively together to solve a problem. Um, Cooper offering kind of like this really strong authoritarian leadership. Um, authoritarian is the wrong word, but we can get to that in a minute because that's interesting <laughs> to talk about. Um, but, um, but just this strong authority figure and then and, and, and Sheriff Truman in his own way, but also being very sensitive and empathetic too. Like I was like, oh, like I, I want leaders like this guiding us through our, our present moment. I got to be honest with you, that was actually, that was something on my mind right there. So I thought there was something 
it comes at it real sideways, believe me. I don't know if Twin Peaks is a text that addresses our current moment, but I'm just saying that like with all the stuff that was on my mind, those were the thing, many, many things I was thinking about. Well, you're, you're, you're speaking my language, Jeff, because one of the thousand notes that I marked down on this rewatch was Twin Peaks is about the internet, question mark, uh, <laughs> which, which I may or may not get to later. Um, but, you know, you mentioned the grief that powers this episode and especially that kind of powers the first half hour of this episode as the news about Laura Palmer spreads throughout the town. And I do think that that is just such a palpable emotional um, anvil that this episode successfully lays while it's doing so much else. And, you know, you were kind of talking about a little bit about, you know, the difficulties, but also not so difficulties of watching this pilot in the context of, of everything that came after of season two and the movie and the missing pieces and uh, the return. Um, watching this pilot, I found myself thinking a lot about the things that have been influenced by Twin Peaks mm. and, and, you know, without throwing all of them out the window, feeling like they all kind of missed the point in some ways, because I think that when we think about early Twin Peaks and we think about um, the show's kind of larger iconography and pop culture, um, sometimes, or at least what I had absorbed about Twin Peaks, probably what I've even written about it at times, it can feel as if it is a somewhat synthetic creation. That you know, this notion of like Lynch as this kind of, you know, he's interested in kind of retro Americana and he's kind of infusing that in, into Twin Peaks. Um, you know, but watching this pilot, I thought about something that uh, actually um, that uh, Jim Gavin, who created Lodge 49, um, a show that is superficially similar in some ways to Twin Peaks, um, when I interviewed him last year, he kind of talked about how his show was kind of magical realist. And I, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, if you're going to do magical realism, the realism has to be, you know, as important as the magic and the realism has to be believable. And I found myself thinking about that so much in the Twin Peaks pilot because, um, you know, as much as there are wacky things that are happening and as much as this world is immediately just so evocative and supernatural in its own way, even if not much supernatural is happening in this episode, um, you know, the weirdness of it runs right alongside of an incredible sincerity um, in the performances, uh, in, in the rawness of the emotions that they feel. And yeah. like, I mean, like Donna Hayward's yes. grief when she is, you know, as she's realizing what happened to her friend, um, the moment right before that, when the nameless girl just kind of runs across there's yes. all these things that are happening that are just um you know to me really conjure up lynch as a humanist and, and mark frost a writer who loves mysteries and, and who loves the kind of larger supernatural historical stuff about twin peaks um you know them as storytellers and their performers as performers of real raw human emotion um and a moment like that that really jumped out to me that I think I wouldn't have noticed before was uh, near the end of the episode, uh, Doc Hayward has just gotten Donna back. And there's been that kind of business about like, you know, fear about her and all the stuff that she's been finding out about uh, Laura. Um, and I love that taking her home, Doc Hayward mentions, well, like, we have to get your bike back. Yeah. And I and I think you promised your sister that you would inflate it with a little bit more air. And I just think that's the kind of little detail that you know, I think about the stuff that has captured the Twin Peaks vibe one way or another, and some of it I really like, and some of, sometimes I like it when it's very artificial, but that just feels really kind of wonderful. And I think stuff like that permeates the pilot so much 
that it still, to me, as you were saying, stands on its own. It, it doesn't have the feeling of a pilot that was setting up all these mysteries in one way or another. Your awareness of where that went impacts your enjoyment of it. It still just stands so completely on its own. Yeah. Were there other moments like that that kind of jumped out at you on this watch that maybe you hadn't noticed before or that hadn't really resonated in that way for you before? Well, I, like I, I really like what you have to say had to say, especially about that last moment with um with a. Uh, with with um, Donna and her father, I mean, there are so many moments that back in the day, or even until recently, when we used to watch this pilot, or used to talk about this pilot, um, we we used to talk about moments like this existing rather ironically, right? And 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 um, and, uh, but that moment in particular, I mean, it has it, it it's it's so sincere, almost to the point of. Of, of a hokiness, maybe it is a little hokey, but then at, when, 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 when her father says, we're just really grateful to have a daughter like you. I mean, there is irony in that line. If you know the story of Twin Peaks and you know that, you know, Donna isn't probably as, as good um, mm -hmm. as, as, as he's probably imagining in that moment. But at the same time, what I was really connected to in that moment was just a father who has just experienced and seen um, the death of this um, of, of of Laura Palmer, and now just grateful to know that his daughter is alive. Yeah. Um, and 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 there's something very I I can relate to that as a parent, um, and that just seems it's very simple and 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 just so wholly sincere. Yeah. I mean, uh, like. I think that you, you, you said it really well. Um, there were just, for me, I think that when I watched, you know, when I watched the pilot pilot the first time, I was such in the Lynch space or what I thought Lynch was at that time. I was under the influence of Blue Velvet in particular, yeah. which I found very ironic, but now in retrospect also find more sincere than ironic. And so when I watched it then, and when I have thought about it for years since, I think more about the quirky humor and the irony and the subversions of everything. Um, and going into watching it again, I think I was expecting that experience or looking out for that experience. But instead, I, I, I probably experienced that pilot this time in, a, in everything that was ironic, I experienced a little more sincere. And I, I found it more more potent than than ever, and you know, you know, to slightly to, to pivot to a conversation I know that we really want to have, where where I where I experienced that, in many ways, is in the character of Agent Cooper. Yeah. So for me, watching this pilot, the 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 the, the major, the major revelation for me, or the thing that I noticed the most that I don't really recall thinking about or experiencing before is this experience of Agent Cooper and comparing like what I thought of him and how I experienced him in this pilot, you know, in years past and how I experience him now in light of events and in light of Twin Peaks, The Return. And I think when I initially kind of like, you know, back in the day, the, the Agent Cooper that I fell in love with and I, that I thought he was, was this sort of Dudley do right type with these really quirky affectations, you know, like his 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 love of 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 of, of, of the of the geography and and the small townness, the pie, the coffee, the the the, the trees of of the Pacific Northwest and Twin Peaks, um, and all of his little 
um, man, his, his, his mannerisms, I just found him like endearingly quirky and hilarious, you know, um, one moment that I remember in particular, um, watching it the first time around that just struck me as just really funny is the moment where he meets um, uh, Sheriff Truman for the first time in the hall of the hospital. And we get that line, they're way down at the end of the hall and they shake hands and they, whatever, they start walking down toward us. And all of a sudden Cooper says, Sheriff Truman, I'm going to stop you in the hall right here and talk to you about something. And he <laughs> stops him. And, and then he stops him right in the hall and, and, and talks to him about something like that, that bit of business of Agent Cooper telling Sheriff Truman what he's about to do and then he does it and like I remember thinking that was really funny and Lynchian ironic back in the day you know um Mike's and so I I hope you guys understand what I mean by by you know he was much more he was a he was quirky um and and he was just quirky let's just for the lack of a better word quirky um the Cooper that I encountered in this rewatch, Darren, struck me as 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 as, as someone really different. I I was I, I I I I was really struck by the law enforcement agent, the law enforcement version of of, of Agent Cooper. In 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 this pilot, this is a guy who, you know, like my impression and my conception of Agent Cooper, largely formed by the show itself and everything that came after, is this more of kind of like this mystic detective, the guy who's like throwing rocks at like, you know, bottles and stuff like that to glean clues and who's having dreams and stuff like this. But this Cooper is not that Cooper in the pilot. This Cooper is kind of like this real, um, like intense, slightly authoritarian um like hard ass cop you know mm -hmm. who um you know is is the guy who's not going to take any you know oink oink off that bobby briggs you know what i mean <laughs> um who's playing mind games and and, and 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 manipulative tactics who's who takes almost kind of like this sinister glee and mystery i mean he enjoys his job almost to a scary degree you know like that scene where he's like you know, you know, getting that the, the letter out from underneath Laura's finger in the fritzing like autopsy room and it, the, the lighting kind of offsetting this sort of mad maniacal look in his face as he's like, um, like we got Harry, we got a lot to talk about, you know, um, <laughs> and um, or, you know, just his interrogation of Bobby Briggs, which is an amazing scene or um, the way that he takes charge in the community meeting and all of that. I was just kind of really struck by these aspects of Agent Cooper, this sort of like, um, yeah, like the, the guy who is just, is just this, this really kind of strong-willed and very good at his job lawman um, that is offset by these quirky touches of like liking nature and pie, etc. Yeah, there's definitely Does that make just sense to you. It absolutely makes sense to me. Um, you know, Jeff, it's funny. In rewatching this pilot, I kind of had a a Gordon Cole memory flash that may or may not be a dream, but I don't think it is. Um, in the past, I think I've told you that I first saw the Twin Peaks pilot uh, a few years before. Twin Peaks The Return. 
uh, either on, I think it was on Netflix by then. So it would have been like 2012 or 2013. Watching the pilot, I remembered that actually, when I was much younger, I kind of randomly turned on Bravo uh, at the time that Twin Peaks was airing in reruns on Bravo. And I, I remember it because on, uh, on my Blu-ray, the Log Lady introduction, which was filmed for those reruns, I remember seeing that. Uh, she has a pretty memorable um, uh, intro to the pilot, which features the words, Laura is the one. And I remember watching the first few scenes. And I was, I was pretty young, so you're going to have to forgive me on this. But I remember turning off the pilot because I was kind of like, I don't really get it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like, I know I've heard about this show. I think at the time, I can't quite remember the timeline, but this was probably the time where if Lost wasn't on, then it was already kind of in the 24 era where drama was just getting a little more kinetic. And so I, I think maybe young and dumb me might have thought the pilot was just kind of slow. Now old me wishes all shows could move at, at a Better Call Saul pace. So I've, I've, <laughs> I've, I've turned a big corner. Um, but but um, when I ultimately did watch the pilot in full, years and years later, what I remember is that I only, it only really clicked for me in the scene when you meet Dale Cooper, when he's in his car driving into Twin Peaks, yeah. talking to Diane. And from there, you know, the stuff that you're kind of describing, um, him talking to Harry Truman, uh, the fact that he pauses to kind of have this like federal cop talking to local cops, serious talk, and then kind of says like, Sheriff, what do you call these fantastic trees you have already? <laughs> like all of that. So, so at that point, um, Cooper was really, for me as a viewer, my entryway into Twin Peaks. And, you know, one of the stylistically interesting things about this pilot is you spend so much time with the townspeople before the kind of hero, open yeah. up his question mark of the show, arrives. And he is yeah. kind of the person that I remember feeling so close to. And the funny thing is that now, in the context of everything you're talking about, I actually felt like the pilot changed quite a bit for me when he arrived for all the reasons that you're describing. You know, you go from these people who are feeling this loss so vividly and, you know, again, in a way that only kind of complicates him in an interesting way and I think speaks to everything that will make him interesting in what's to come. That scene where he is digging at the letter out of her fingernail and that close up on him and the relish he takes with finding this mystery, um, you know, it's, it's still fabulous and it's a great introduction to the character, but it really does make him seem kind of off-putting in a way that certainly um, ties in more for me with you know what you would experience of him in the return yes. and even even certain aspects of season two when i think uh, one of the renault brothers i i, I kind of lose track of them says that they think he is the problem with the town i just i don't know i interesting I, is yeah. that kind of is that kind of what you're talking about this feeling that he he either for us as viewers or just watching it now you do feel him a little bit more as this outside influence in town that is, isn't quite the quirky problem solver that perhaps we sort of experience him as at times. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because going into, I remember we were having these conversations between you and me and um, with some other um, uh, Twin Peaks fans, including um, John Thorne um, and, and, and some others. And, like going into the return, there was this kind of view of Agent Cooper that that frankly kind of took me su by surprise because it was 
not my experience of Agent Cooper, at least not the Agent Cooper I wanted to remember. But there were others like like John who had kind of zeroed in on this aspect of of, of Cooper um, that was evident, I guess, to a lot of people, but maybe not to my to, to me and my romantic <laughs> the way that I romanticized Agent Cooper during the series. Um, that, that that there were some real flaws to Agent Cooper, and that. And that his want to be a hero, his attraction to mystery, his attraction to darkness, those things, and 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 his 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 curiosity and, and and his and his courage in the face of that, or flawed courage, is is was both admirable and also a fatal flaw. But regardless, that those parts of him that made him a good detective were also character flaws in him, um, mm-hmm. and I feel like. Twin Peaks The Return really like like not focused on that or really kind of meditated on that part of him uh, you know really got to that a lot so w- with that kind of like more flawed and complicated view of Cooper's um, heroism in The Return that obviously a lot of people had seen um, but I kind of missed I think to be honest with you when I watched Twin Peaks the first time around with that in mind, watching the pilot and encountering this version of Cooper, what I was struck by was not so much that I feel like, um, it wasn't like that the return had reframed or retconned the pilot, but rather illuminated for me the Cooper that always was, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So. Um, I, I know this is a topic of conversation, you know, we're, we're talking about here, and I think I know, I know other Twin Peaks fans are having, which is to what degree does the return kind of change the way you you, you watch the pilot for me um, with its most, you know, you know, one of its most important characters, Cooper. It, it doesn't reframe or retcon Cooper for me. It um, it actually illuminates the Cooper that I think was always there. Um, and, and, and that we, we experience even more potently. So there's an interesting direct connection between the Cooper of the pilot and the Cooper of, of, of the return. Um, it almost as if not to set up a, well, I'm going to set up a conversation topic for us, maybe not right now, but for later, but like the, 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 the Cooper of the pilot is, 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 has more in common with the Cooper of the return than he does, I think that with with maybe the Cooper of the series, if that yeah. if, if that makes sense. Well, let's 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 just dive right into that, Jeff, um, because uh, this was kind of one thing that we were discussing in our respective rewatches. That um, you know, one big thing that I experienced with this pilot, having seen the return, was just how many pieces of this first episode. Um, either in direct narrative terms or just kind of more broader stylistic things, even just ambient stuff, like the fact that Sarah Palmer spends so much of this pilot on her couch, which is also where she seems to spend the vast majority of the return when, as you point out, she's not making quick quarantine runs to the supermarket or uh, attacking, uh, semi-justifiably uh, tearing throats <laughs> out yes. in bars. Um, you know, um, 
Last year, we played kind of a little stylistic game with our Twin Peaks The Return rewatch, um, which, uh, uh, and now I'm forgetting exactly what it was. I think it was watch Firewalk with me, then watch part 18, then go back to part one. <laughs> it, it, was it was a very convoluted it was a sort of it was, it was a sort of like, you know, pretzel curly cue uh, mm-hmm. um, experiment. And of course, always make sure that you watch the Josie Packard scene from The Missing Pieces too, just for fun. <laughs> yes. But, um, uh, but, yeah, I, I, it's interesting to me to think of the pilot as a jumping off point for the return in a lot of ways. You're talking about the character of Cooper. Um, you know, just like in a behind the scenes way, I think one thing that we've always kind of experienced as people who've read a lot about Twin Peaks is kind of this feeling that for a lot of people involved, the pilot was kind of this magical thing that almost kind of had to exist outside of the run of the show. And, you know, whether you like the whole show that followed or, you know, that you feel that there's ups and downs, the pilot in terms of its look, in terms of what it can kind of accomplish is obviously just so different. Um, what, what do you think about that, about just skipping from the pilot to the return? Um, you know, what are some of the interesting aspects of that that have kind of jumped out to you as far as how this first piece of the puzzle skips right over everything that followed into the kind of 18 part um, remix revival uh, furthering in every direction that we got in season three. Well, how I relate to that question that you asked, I might, I might not be exactly answering it right on the nose and directly, but it was interesting to think about the return as sort of like, what if Lynch and Frost just decided that like nothing after the pilot kind of really mattered <laughs> and we decided to um, just make a show that like, okay, the, the pilot like told this story of certain events that happened in, certain, in, a, in a certain period of time many, many years ago. And now it's 25 years later. And um, this is where all of these people ended up. Um, and we're going to, um, and, and they obviously ended up in a very strange place. And w- we might backfill some stories. We may not. We may like just ask you to, to pick up, to, to, um, use your imagination, but um, you know uh, that's a that's a that's a that's a a very appealing thought to me somehow, um, and um, it, it it makes me want because this was a thought that we had after watching it, it um, and so I, I kind of now want to go back and watch the pilot again and then watch the return and see if that idea holds up because um, there were some real moments in the pilot where I've kind of thought, like, for example, Audrey Horn. There is this moment when, when, when they're taking role in the high school and when, they, when the teacher calls out Audrey Horn, Audrey Horn responds by saying, here, with air quotes, as if she's not really here or she is here. It's like this really ironic way of being here. Like, you know, she's making a statement there. But I kind of thought that with that simple kind of gesture, here, in air quotes, she just summed up in a word and an, in a, an idea like 
a, a fair amount of her whole story in the return, which is, is Audrey really here in this story? Um, is this all taking, is, where is she, you know? Um, is she, you know, is, 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 is she actually in the town of Twin Peaks? Is she lost in her mind? How present is she in reality here? And I just kind of thought like, like, like if if, the, if 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 Mark Frost and David Lynch did say, hey, let's just like watch the pilot and then just imagine where all of these people and 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 forget about what we did in seasons two and three and or seasons two, the rest of season one, and then um, in season two and just kind of like rift on some of the essential character ideas and moments of the pilot. Um, and this and 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 the result yeah. is the return. Like uh, I, I, I buy I that. I felt that really strongly with a lot of the characters. Um, and, you know, when you, you were kind of discussing Audrey, um, to me, I was thinking a lot about how, and, and to be clear, I think some of this is the fact that, you know, obviously I, I appreciated the fact watching The Return that, you know, Lynch and Frost had kind of, in their own specific way, there were times where they were kind of conjuring up what had happened in the past and sometimes very much doing a brand new thing. And I always appreciated that. But I think watching the pilot, I really appreciated just kind of how densely um, they did construct the return to harken back to things in the pilot. Um, and you know, there's right. little moments like, um, uh, you know, is it about the bunny? It's not about the bunny. The chocolate bunnies are right yes. there, are right there in the pilot. Um, but even kind of sequences that really um, lead you into the return, like the fact that Shelley leaves her job at the double R, gets into a car with uh, a boy who she probably shouldn't be getting so close to, and they have this kind of furtive makeout session. Is someone watching us? Should we leave? Um, you know, the fact that in the return, when we meet Shelley's daughter, she does almost the exact same thing, leaves the double R, gets into a car with a boy she probably shouldn't be together with. You know, they drive somewhere else so they can make out. I just, you know, I was really um, struck by the echoes of that. Yeah. Um, this is simultaneously, uh, what you were kind of saying about, you know, what would happen to these people 25 years later? And it's almost kind of like, what would happen to them if they weren't really even on a show anymore? Like, this, this crazy thing happened to them. Someone they know died, and now it's 25 years later. I felt that a lot with a character who... Um, I love so much in the pilot and so much of the return and then just everything that happens in between is just so debasing for him. But James in the pilot, you yeah. know, he has such a kind of wonderful and in some ways silly, but, but I think really kind of beautiful journey where like, you know, he's sad about Laura, he drives off and just kind of, you know, parks his bike and stares, you know, into the horizon of mountains in the distance. Um, that shot, <laughs> that shot's really stuck in my head because uh, on Netflix, at least, that shot is like the, the button they use for the twin, for, for Twin Peaks when you're clicking on it. Um, of, of all things, like James and his hog are like the image that they chose. For, for Twin Peaks, um, which I always find. I, I, I know that's kind of personalized for different people, but that's that's what I see for some reason. That's like, probably, like, like, 
like that's like like maybe 39th on the list of images for me if i was to sum up twin I, know, peaks. I know i know but um but, but but i love that um and obviously you know james's scene with donna i've i've raved about this before but like that scene of them just being so intensely close oh my gosh the fact, so the fact that they are talking about their dead friend who they both loved and that leads them into having this incredibly romantic kiss it's just it's so wonderful and th- there's a moment where donna is kind of saying his name like James. James. and it's it's just such a high point for what Lara Flynn Boyle um, brought to the, to the show this incredibly sultry moment that nevertheless feels very much in keeping with the kind of somewhat innocent character that she's playing yeah, yeah. and I found myself thinking about James in The Return and yeah and I love James in The Return but boy life has been hard on him and you know we see him in the roadhouse that may or may not be the roadhouse of the mind singing with those pale imitations of two maybe dead women who loved him long ago and I just thought watching the pilot will anyone ever say his name like this again just so Uh romantic like you know this here here he is he's just lost the love of his life and now 24 hours later less than that the other love of his life is kissing him it's just i I don't know i I find i find that um tying back into what you were saying about the return as checking in with these characters so many years later and you know some of them still being stuck in place and getting a wonderful catharsis in the case of 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 what happens with um of course with uh with big ed and um you know for for others uh Things doctor things not turning out so well, and, yeah. and 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 for some of them, like Mike the Jock, just becoming you know kind of an ass who who, who works at a company now. No, like, totally. like... James is a good character to talk about, and I'm glad that you brought him up in in relationship to this thought experiment that we are proposing here, which is that to be very clear about it, and 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 I'm going to refine this point in just a second. You don't need any other Twin Peaks but the pilot and the return is essentially kind of what we're, we're, we're saying here. Um, and I'm going to walk that back in a second. <laughs> Trust me you know, for a second, okay. But like, I remember when we were talking about James um, um, in the return and we were, we were talking about the, you know, what was funny and tragic about James was just that how much he had not changed and how nostalgic he was. But when we were talking about that analysis, all of those reference points were basically the pilot, you know, Um, that and like him kind of like um, singing just you and I with, uh, (laughs) with, with Don and Maddie, you know, right. I mean, but those are like, like, like pilot James and, you know, that early episode in season two, James, that's, that's kind of all you need to know about James to like, to appreciate like the ironies and, and fate of him in, 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 in the return. I mean, the fact that like, like, you know, in the return, James, yeah, it's not only kind of still like singing with these two doppelgangers of the, of these, of these two women, but like, he's still kind of emotionally messy, right? He's like crushing on some other, you know, on, 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 on a married woman. And that's kind of inappropriate. He's still kind of like very messy with his boundaries. You know, he's still very much the guy who like is grieving his dead girlfriend. And then all of a sudden he's kissing her best friend at the end of the pilot, you know, um, he's just an you know, emotionally messy guy. But also how like, you know, at the end of the pilot, James is in jail 
um, in, in that little, like, you know, that jail in, in the Twin yeah. Peaks police station, dealing with some scary customers in the other, like, you know, cells. And here in the return, that's his final fate, too. So there yeah. seems to be these sort of really thematic correlations between the two. Now, so just to walk this back, my, 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 my real feeling is that, of course, I absolutely love Twin Peaks, the series, and I love, well, I have a very complicated but mostly admiring regard for Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. And so what I, what my experience of watching the pilot last night and thinking about its relationship to the return is, is that I, I kind of now think of these very separate pieces of Twin Peaks. There's this sort of the first ur text that is Twin Peaks, the pilot, and then there is season one, season two, the prequel and the return. And if, if we were to lump all of season one and season two together, so the, the original series and then the prequel and the return, I kind of view all of these things as, as their own separate responses to the pilot. Yeah. You know, they're all, they have their own distinct relationship to the pilot and they all represent if, if Twin Peaks, the pilot represented this beautiful thing, um, a singular creation in time, um, the series, the prequel, the return are all of these unique responses made by a unique set of creators and collaborators responding to what Twin Peaks meant as described by the pilot. Yeah, you know, Jeff, thinking about the things that followed in Twin Peaks as a response to the pilot, I think a lot about conversations we've had about David Lynch and Mark Frost and their sometimes different visions of Twin Peaks as an overall experience. Uh, Mark Frost, of course, writing his dossiers, which encompass uh, they bring in Lewis and Clark, they bring in Nixon. He's obviously very interested in the kind of like American historical texture underlying what's happening in Twin Peaks. Um, fair to say that Lynch generally seems less invested in that, although there's plenty of that in the stuff that he's directed. Um, but, you know, with Fire Walk With Me, um, when I think of Fire Walk With Me in the context of the pilot, I think a lot about the one time we see Laura Palmer alive, which is the videotape of her playing with Donna. Um, you know, that's kind of Cheryl Lee as Laura Palmer, um, not as a corpse, as someone who is very much alive. And I, I, I find myself thinking about David Lynch as a filmmaker at the time, you know, this ultimately is a character who upon her invention was already dead. And yet he has spent a lot of his time as an artist um, making uh, motion pictures about Laura Palmer in one state of reality or another as her <laughs> cousin, or, you know, I just, I find, you know, that slow zoom onto her eyeball, um, which to me is like, you know, more than anything else, I think of the pilot, that slow zoom stuck with me on this rewatch because it's just so haunting. Um, you know, that that's kind of all a fire walk with me in a moment right there. And I think that, um, so I, I, re I really react a lot to what you're saying about the idea of, you know, the narrative not so much moving in a straight line, which is not a very controversial thing to say about Twin Peaks, um, but how each of the parts that would come after it kind of react to, um, what's happening in the pilot. And I, you know, I think just to kind of, just to kind of clarify, I mean, 
this pilot is so ridiculously great. And, <laughs> yes. um, yeah. you know, uh, that's sort of, that's not, it's that's a kind of obvious thing to say, but it just struck me that, you know, we were talking about the notes that we were taking and like, I, I don't know. I just kind of feel like it's, it's like a Borges uh, short story. The amount of notes that you can take on this, like individual scenes just all live and breathe in such a unique way. Uh, I was texting you that one of my favorite moments was um, when you kind of cut into Mrs. Briggs and Garland Briggs uh, in, in their kitchen. She answers the phone to talk to Laura Palmer and just grabs a pair of scissors and starts slicing the air. And, you know, there's, there's something there that is, I think, very much in the spirit of, you know, what is Lynchian? It's something that's so weird that it becomes more normal than normal. I, I, I feel that it's such an interesting little detail. Um, yeah, the, the, all those odd idiosyncratic details that make everything so specific and both at the same time, like very real, but also yeah. very kind of like heightened reality and dreamy. Yeah. Like that that moment with with um, with in, in the Briggs household that you, you are mentioning, you focused on the scissors. The thing that really jumped out at me in that scene is that as we meet Major Briggs and his wife, he's sitting in a chair reading a newspaper and she's kind of like rubbing his shoulders and that's fine. You know, that there's nothing <laughs> weird about that at all. Um, uh, they're a very loving uh, couple and they, they're really into each other. But the thing is, is that he's sitting in a chair, like in the middle of the kitchen, like he's not sitting at a table or whatever. It's like, it's like they moved a chair away from the table. Cause when, when, when Mrs. Briggs is going to go pick up that phone, she's going to pick up the phone near the kitchen table. So apparently what they did was they pulled a table, a, a chair away from the table into the middle of the kitchen for Mr. Briggs to sit in the middle of the, Major Briggs to sit in the middle of the kitchen to read a paper while he receives a massage from his wife. <laughs> I'm like, how are those decisions made? But it just, it is an odd moment, like where you see this in a rich abundance um, is in like the high school scene where it's just yeah. kind of like one odd moment after another um, where the way that like, you know, the way that Bobby Briggs enters into school and he kind of is like talking to Mike and then he gets summoned into the library and he kind of like runs backwards and all of that or, or the, or the weird, like, like dancing dude in the middle, in the background of that one shot, you know, it just, you know, or Audrey, like taking off her one set of shoes and putting on another pair of shoes, you know, um, uh, like, it's just like all of these really wonderful little weird details um, that just make all of those characters pop in yeah. really unique ways with, without much dialogue or but just give them such personality and attitude that lend to both the, 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 the utter specificity of those gestures and those ideas make it, again, just more real, but then just serve this sort of dreaminess that we talk about all the time with, with, with Lynch's storytelling. Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, editor-in-chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce season five of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam.
Yeah. Um, again, going back to something that you were saying, how this pilot still really feels like it stands on its own as much as there's so much to enjoy when you kind of view it in the context of, of everything that comes after. Um, I remember kind of talking to you about the Big Ed scenes in The Return. And, you know, there's, there's that one scene with Big Ed in The Return where he's just kind of uh, eating his uh, to-go cup from the oh, double wow. R. And, you know, the car's passing by. We've, we've looked at that scene from a, few from, from a few different directions. But what always struck me was this feeling that Lynch and Frost, more than anything, just wanted to have this kind of immortal moment with Big Ed at his gas farm at nighttime, kind of right where he always is and always was and always will be no matter what. And I, I think about that, you know, these, these immortal moments with the characters in the pilot where, you know, again, there are great moments with, you know, with all of them later on and some of them would only really come to life later on, but it just feels like, you know, what you're talking about, Audrey in the shoes is just kind of like this apex moment for her character and, you know, what it kind of says about her as someone who has, has these many faces, what it says about her as someone who is kind of dreamy and kind of set off from the other kids, certainly. Um, you know, I, I, I'm just so struck by um, just the outpouring of creativity involved in the making of this pilot. Um, you know, Jeff, we're, we're both, uh, we're both uh, very loving subscribers to the magazine, The Blue Rose, um, uh, which is an absolutely essential ongoing text for people who love Twin Peaks. Their latest issue was all about the pilot. It's a great celebration, um, a great 30th uh, anniversary celebration. And they have a great kind of, uh, you know, moment to moment deconstruction of the pilot with Mark Frost. And uh, one of the things I love about that is that, you know, Frost, who of course has a lot of insight to offer, he talks a lot about how, you know, Lynch's just creation of mood and of feeling and of things that, you know, he, he as a writer, I think, maybe he even kind of admits or kind of, you know, that stuff that can only go so far on the page and just, you know, Lynch's moods, what he's conjuring up um, in this pilot are just so incredible. E even the fact that this pilot kind of takes place over the course of a whole day and we kind of see the whole town rising and getting their morning coffee and then moving through the day and having their afternoon coffee and then it's time for their evening coffee. Like I just, I love the, the flow of all of that. I think I heard yeah. you turning the pages of the Blue Rose magazine. So do you have more, <laughs> more, more kind of thoughts in, in, in that direction? <laughs> well, I was trying to flip to kind of like a, a, an exchange of dialogue that I just wanted to get it right. Um, that was like among my favorite things about in the pilot, but, but, but yeah. Um, yeah. Just, um, I, I, I love what you're saying. Like this pilot really is like a day in the life. Whenever I revisit the pilot and I encounter Pete played by the great Jack Nance. Um, and you know, th that's always a very sentimental kind of thing. And, and I, and I would say that, it, you know, among moments in the pilot that kind of connected me rather powerfully to the return in complicated and sentimental ways, but just like, you know, depending on how you interpret those moments in the final parts of the return that seem to suggest that Cooper's time traveling heroism has negated a lot of the events in this pilot. <laughs> um, but, but, but a specifically kind of like beginning with, um, uh, you know, Pete going out and listening to the lonely, you know, foghorn and, uh, mm -hmm. and then, you know, about to go fishing when he, when he catches sight of, uh, of a figure wrapped in plastic. Um, 
Um, but just like th those, those encountering th th those moments again in Twin Peaks um, in, in the pilot, and then immediately thinking of like, oh, what we saw in the return is that, you know, this stuff didn't happen. You know, yeah. the, 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 the iconic moment, she's dead, wrapped in plastic. Um, and I love what, by the way, what Mark Frost said, I believe, um, in the new issue of The Blue Rose, how Jack um, Nance is like one of those actors that kind of like makes a meal out of every line or, yeah. you know, I forget what his exact quote is, but just that how much he just, that actor himself kind of brought to that line in particular and made it iconic. But yeah, I, I like that idea. Like you just really, they, you know, it's just this day in this life of this town and waking up waking up to the horror of Laura Palmer and then using that to kind of just drive us through the day and meet everyone. Um, it is, it is just, yeah, it's just, it's dreamy, but it's so dense. And yeah, like, like we meet so many people and set so many stories in motion before we even get to agent Cooper who comes in and starts bringing some kind of vestige of like conventional narrative and coherence to everything that we've just experienced as he starts this investigation like yeah it, it is it is yeah I, I was lost in it all over again i i found myself it's funny this is this thing i'm going to say will officially make this podcast jeff a podcast with two dads talking but <laughs> I, I found myself comparing the structure of this episode to columbo a little bit have you watched much much of Columbo, the uh, the uh, detective series of uh, yesteryear? No, I have not really revisited the the, uh, the, the Columbo canon recently. Columbo is my new kind of like falling asleep after a long, long day, and I just want to. Oh, interesting! Like, I want to kind of like, and and, I, and to be clear, it, it doesn't put me to sleep. Uh, having an eight month old puts me to sleep, but uh, but like. So Columbo, the structure of it, uh, star starring the great Peter Falk uh, as an LA detective who's uh, generally investigating uh, fabulously wealthy uh, Packard Martell level, uh, you know, wealthy people who do terrible things in fabulous houses in Los Angeles. Every episode of Columbo, <laughs> um, they, they were all two hours, I believe, with commercials, or at least they were extra long. So there's always a very long prologue where you initially are following it from the perspective of the, pe of the people who will become the killers. So you, you're with them, you see them commit the act, for whatever reason it happens. And only then does Columbo kind of appear and kind of start investigating. And so in a weird way, it creates this feeling where as lovable as Columbo is, just in terms of story, you're always a little more on the side of the people who committed the act of murder. Oh, interesting. And, 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 and so there's a part, you know, it, it's not a who done it, it's a how is he going to solve it. And you're always kind of on some way hoping they get away with it, even though usually they're so horribly wealthy that you're also just waiting for the moment that the Columbo is finally going to get them. And I, I thought about that a little bit with the structure of this pilot, because because it is longer than, you know, certainly the average world. It's, it's, it's about the length of some Netflix pilots, unfortunately, but um, you know, it was longer than the average pilot and the richness of getting to spend so much time with the people of Twin Peaks and then Cooper kind of arriving. Um, you know, we're talking so much about how the return affected us and, and how it illuminates this pilot. And to me, you know, one thing that I think we talked about with some bafflement and, and ultimate joy with the return was our confusion about the fact that, you know, how can you do an 18 part Twin Peaks story 
where Dale Cooper only gets to Twin Peaks in yeah. part 17. Good point. And yeah. watching this pilot, because of everything we've been talking about, I actually felt like, oh, you know, like, I kind of get it. There is this incredible richness of character and this world here and the roadhouse and the school and the great Northern and all of these places that, you know, for a short amount of time in the context of what would happen in, in Twin Peaks, the show, but for a very long time in the context of this pilot, you're just there and, and, and Dale Cooper isn't. And I, I find that again, thinking about strange ways that this pilot, which is so different in so many ways, leads into the return. I think about that a lot, how Twin Peaks and the citizens of it as autonomous people who don't necessarily need to be investigated, um, you know, kind of have their own stuff going on. And even, you know, you, you were kind of talking about just how much is happening and how many plot lines are being set up. I just love how when you get to the kind of town meeting at the end, it's almost as if the show is just like, oh yeah, like there's so much more going on. Oh yeah, like that's Josie Packard and her husband died. And like, yeah, we'll get to that later. That's her sister. That's the Logley. Like, it's just like, it's like yeah. they, 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 they couldn't fit in all of the plot lines that they were kind of generating. And they just kind of had to have that great exchange between the, uh, between Special Agent Cooper and Sheriff Truman about just, he, he almost needs to be saying, so um, what other seasons worth of television have been happening here in, in the meantime, <laughs> besides the death of, of Laura Palmer? Yeah. You know, back to the Columbo of it all, Darren. Um, <laughs> two dads, two dads. <laughs> how much? How much I would love just to like have some kind of crossover episode between Twin Peaks and Columbo, where Agent Cooper and Columbo somehow magically just switch places in each other's oh. stories, and Columbo is navigating like the Black Lodge. <laughs> of Twin Peaks. Now, 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 Mike, uh, just, just one more question. Just one more question before I go. <laughs> right, right. And, 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 and like, but you know, the thing about Columbo is like, uh, would Columbo ever say a line like, you know, uh, in response to Harry Truman, you know, Sheriff Truman saying to him, I think they spotted us. And then Cooper just goes, you know, give me a donut. <laughs> <laughs> to, to, yeah, that that was a moment watching the pilot where, like, you know, it like that that struck me that I just remember that moment vividly as much as the one in the hallway that I talked about earlier of just kind of like, what is that scene even doing in this episode? You know, just like like it, it was almost like I like you know it was like oh like um. Let's just kind of have Cooper and, and, and Sheriff Truman do kind of a series of scene uh, m moments where they're just kind of rattling off kind of, you know, Sheriff Truman, just say stuff to Cooper and just have Cooper just respond randomly. I don't know, but just like, you know, that whole like, that whole like, yeah, I, I think they spotted us. And then Cooper just says, give me a donut like that. I yeah, uh, I, 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 I love that stuff so much. I had a question for you, Jeff, just again, as someone who, who watched the show when it first aired, um, because uh, for me, even the passage of years since I first saw the pilot, um, one thing I feel way less about this pilot now is the feeling of it as being specifically retro. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, maybe that's just because, you know, the notion of it, the notion of Twin Peaks as being slightly out of time, maybe it's just because watching it 30 years later, everything's out of time. So, you know, whether it was 
1990 or 1990 kind of in vague 50s face, um, you know, it, it doesn't quite feel, it goes back to what I was saying about it, about it feeling less synthetic. Um, but I, I'd be intrigued to know, like, to you, watching Twin Peaks now, do you feel that? Do you feel the kind of David Lynch, uh, blue velvety, uh, you know, Hardy Boys aspect of it? Or does it conjure up the 90s? Or, or does, it, does it have a more timeless quality, if, uh, if, you, if you see what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I totally. And I, I remember when we, in, in previous podcasts, when we've talked about this and our relationship to it, um, you know, a definite aspect of me, of, of my experience of, of Twin Peaks originally was being a big fan of Lynch, specifically like very captivated by Blue Velvet and, and seeing in Twin Peaks what felt to me kind of like an extrapolation of the Blue Velvet sensibility, if you will, the, the David Lynch's approach to sort of like noir you know and then kind of like extrapolating that into a small town another small town in in uh somewhere in the american west this time in washington just several miles south of the canadian border um and so it it definitely felt like um in a a very deliberate attempt this is the way it used to feel to me like a very deliberate attempt to extrapolate and just distill like twin uh blue velvet into something that was um, very unique for television, but but was for lack of a better phrase, like you know, blue velvet light, you know, mm-hmm. like a more accessible version of blue velvet yeah. for the masses on Twin Peaks, and 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 as part of that, you know, blue velvet is very much at that was was you know steeped in a lot of uh, retro elements, as all of the '80s were. You know, '80s was very nostalgic for the '60s and '50s. Um, we were kind of living out a lot of that baby boomer nostalgia and, you know, and, and, and not that t- blue velvet or twin peaks were, were indulgences of that nostalgia. In fact, you know, ultimately Lynch weaponizes nostalgia in that way and ends up subverting that um, mm-hmm. and to kind of like uh, to, to, to um, ask some, you know, to, to unsettle us and disturb us and to subvert that, to ask, you know, to ask us, get us to ask questions about Americana and, and, and all of that. Um, so yeah, like in previous watches, I'm very connected to the retro of it all because it was, it felt like it was about nostalgia back then, but I really didn't. And then I was, and I was looking for that, like when I was watching it last night, going back into it of like, okay, like, like, like this is going to remind me of blue velvet, right? Yeah. Dale Cooper is just Jeffrey Beaumont all grown up and become an FBI agent, which was a, one of my old favorite theories of, 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 of Twin Peaks. Um, but no, I didn't. Like, I just kind of felt very more than ever kind of like, probably taking it on exactly the terms that Frost and Lynch have always wanted to take us, want us to take it on it, which is as a, as a, as a thing unto itself and very specifically a specific thing that is twin peaks. Yeah. And, and, and it, it did feel timeless. It didn't feel retro or dated. It felt like this weird singular specific, you know, place um, in, um, in, 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 you know, yeah. So I, yeah, yeah. I didn't feel retro yeah. at all. Um, but you know, it's funny, like, I, I won't, um, I remember speaking at one point with, 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 a, with a certain filmmaker who typically chooses in his art direction to incorporate retro, uh, a sort of retro aesthetic, 
because his working philosophy was that 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 over time those things stop becoming retro and just become classical and timeless mm-hmm. um, and so it was his shortcut to creating like immortal works yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense right Interesting. like um that's what i kind of feel a little bit about twin peaks like i can't really properly date it you know it doesn't feel dated yeah. um and its retro elements now stop being about nostalgia and just now kind of feel like timeless unique elements of a, of a singular world yeah if if anything i i'd be intrigued my my, my experiment for uh for future viewing is like I, i'd love to see everything else that was on tv that night and i wonder if it would now seem incredibly retro obviously because what they were going for was yeah. what was cool yeah. in 1990 as opposed to how twin peaks as you were saying has this kind of this specific yet timeless quality um i i, I do want to call out there were a couple things that I, I'm not going to say like haven't aged well, but just that kind of jumped out at me in the midst of everything as being sort of, I'm going to say kind of endearingly funny, but did seem to be on a slightly different level of quality from the rest of it. First of all, um, Cooper in the town meeting saying, who's the babe when Josie <laughs> Packard walks in? It's so, it's so out of character for every version of Dale Cooper we would ever see. see. Now that, that's a, thank you for bringing that up. I wrote that down too. That's an example for me where an, an, an evidence or proof, and this kind of circles back a little bit to kind of like some of the things that I was trying to say about Cooper earlier on. Because another way of saying that is, is that they're still trying, they're still finding the character of Cooper in this pilot, exactly, right? Like, exactly. The Cooper, like the idea that Cooper would ever say something like that is so out of step with my conception of agent Cooper. And, um, and, 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 and it just goes to show that they're like, I, I, once they got into the series, clearly they, they, they brought in a whole lot of other influences and ideas that they wanted to incorporate into his character and he grew and changed. And so it would be wrong or unfair to say that the Cooper of the series is, is, is 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 radically different than the Cooper of the pilot um, because you know characters should grow and change and grow yeah. in new dimensions. But at the same time, it is striking. It is yeah. noticeable that the Cooper of the pilot is very different than like you know th- how we typically conceptualize him, and how in some ways the return maybe gets back to that Cooper yeah, uh, of totally. the pilot. But yeah, you're right. That, that moment, like. Um, uh, who's the babe? It's so it's it's, it's <laughs> and and again like, like I I I don't even think that it's you know again it's not bad and certainly in the context of like you know that is very much the kind of we're setting up all this other stuff part of the show and again in, in light of everything I've been saying about how Cooper as this kind of interloper it really does bring that forward but just even the way that Kyle MacLachlan delivers the line for for me it sounds like Kyle MacLachlan is like more so like having fun and and maybe even finding different corners of this character oh yeah 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 yeah, um, yeah. Uh, that reminds me of another another cooper <laughs> moment by the way that kind of is 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 not who's the babe but does speak to this sort of like quality of cooper of like like um which is when they find the um safe deposit box and they find the copy of flesh world and like cooper takes it out and he's super, like you know like there's a page that's marked. You know, he's so excited. Like, what's going to be inside this dirty magazine? <laughs> like, you know. Um, oh, my God. And, 
And then there's another moment, like and I, I am not speaking in any sort of coherent linear way to prove any point other than just to indulge in moments that are like weird and subversive and sexual or whatever. But when they encounter Dr. Jacoby in the hospital and just like, I love that scene because like, you know, Jacoby is such a, a wild character. He's got those things in his ears, but he's got that tie with the hula girl with the grass skirt. <laughs> And the, the, so the two things that strike me about that scene is that during the entire time, if you go back and watch it, I mean, we're, you know, people who are probably listening to this podcast have this moment just in, you know, it's emblazoned in our mind, but the way that Cooper is just kind of looking him up at, up and down and kind <laughs> of like, oh man, you are one sketchy dude. I like, know. You know? And yeah. then the, the punchline to that scene pays it off where he kind of goes, that guy's a psychiatrist. But like, <laughs> but the, the, but the moment, but what, that the little detail in that scene when like Dr. Jacoby starts talking about, you know, I used to see Laura, she was a patient of mine and his finger starts going up the skirt of the the hula girl starts like massaging like underneath the whatever it's just like it's just so like icky what's happening uh, yeah there. yeah um, um similar but but totally different uh, a moment that I, I i i i like it a lot but to me it's almost the first season two moment and it just so happens to be in the pilot but um everyone goes to the roadhouse incredible incredible scene with julie cruz singing falling and this is kind of the convergence of so many strands of the show um you know thinking about stuff in the return coming out of the pilot the fact that uh, bobby punches big ed in this scene you think a lot about when they would see each other in the return and there was this wonderful familiarity with them and this this way in which you know james might have stayed the same but bobby is certainly much changed between now and the return but the portrayal of the bikers in the roadhouse <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the kind of helpful biker who grabs Donna and says, you, you know, I'll take you to James. And like, you know, this, this sort of like, you know, biker uh, mental link, they all seem to share. So they know exactly where James is. There's, there's something that's just kind of wonderfully goofy uh, about that. And, and even like, you know, the, the staging of, of the big fight in the tavern. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, you know, it, it feels very different. It, it, it feels like, you know, again, I, I say season two and as someone who likes a lot of season two, it feels a little bit more in that kind of, you know, levity that you get more from there. Um, I read somewhere this is going to be a, a total butchering of, of trying to say where I, heard, where I heard this from, but some quote somewhere where Lynch or Frost said that they always kind of liked the idea of the bikers in town being these sort of poets who are all at the roadhouse listening to dreamy pop music. And just, just this, this is that moment to a T and it's, it's, it's pretty goofy. <laughs> right. But, but to that, and you know what it really reminded me of is, is this idea that like, you know, and now 25 years later in the return, you know, the roadhouse has, is, is, is now this really bumping scene, <laughs> but, but the youth culture, it's like where they once were, you know, it was one where once this was the hangout largely of these poet bikers, sensitive and romantic and had some kind of ethos. Um, now, like it's, 
it's 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 become more popular but it's but but the quality of character like it's lost its soul it's lost its, its lost soul, its soul. Oh, yeah. No. Yeah. oh no yeah it's just it's it's, well, it's all just like people hanging out talking about who's off house arrest and like what happened to my aunt or my, or my, but it's my this, aunt's it, husband right. or whatever whatever it was. it's this interesting measure <laughs> of i think the underlying perspective of the return which is that it's that something has gone wrong in this town very you know in some ways very very explicitly but almost very subtly over yeah. 25 years whether it's norma franchising um you know the double r and 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 losing its soul to you know something you know something's eaten the kids of uh of uh of, of twin peaks yeah. and it's uh, and it's and, and it's rot it's making them rotten and hollow we know you know exactly who it is it's that newscaster you liked from your from your youth he's 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 coming in to uh to, to franchise everything yeah um, oh yeah oh grand good eve yes <laughs> it is enough the yeah. true the true villain of Twin Peaks finally stands go. revealed. Finally. Um, but uh, uh, Jeff, the true uh, incarnation of Judy. Jeff, uh, I I I don't want to cut off us incoherently rambling about how much about things that we loved in the pilot, but I do want to mention a surprise uh, that 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 we have built into a a twist or or dare I say it um, an ending uh, that perhaps people weren't expecting uh, that, uh, you know, although it ties in with everything that came before, may also go off in a very bold and different and quite unusual direction. Um, because Jeff, we didn't just watch the pilot for this episode. We also dug into the international pilot yes. of Twin Peaks, um, which, which uh, from, from, it, what, yes. from what I could tell is uh, fundamentally the same until it is fundamentally quite different. Right. Um, uh, had you seen the international pilot before, Jeff? And maybe can you talk a bit about uh, just what the difference is? Uh, yeah, I had. I, what, 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 what aired on ABC? I had seen the international pilot, uh, you know, uh, once or twice. And I forget the first time. However, I saw it. Must have been on some kind of video in the you know '90s or early 2000s. I I, I forget. But I mean, the, the story goes is that when um, David Lynch and Mark Frost did a deal to turn the pilot that they were making for ABC into a quote unquote standalone movie that would be distributed um, either theatrically or in video stores or both um, uh, overseas. But of course, the, they, would, they would need an ending for that, um, for that experience. Um, and so um, that international edition basically includes 20 minutes of footage um 15 to 20 minutes or so maybe that might be uh, um, an, uh, um it might be shorter than that but it basically it is just tacked on right at the end and overlapping so in the pilot what you watch is that the show ends with um with with sarah palmer at home having a fitful dream slash vision of seeing um, a mysterious person digging um, half of the heart locket out of the forest that James and Donna buried, and this this freaks her out. Um, and I think I think if you look carefully in, in the mirror in the background, you see a fleeting image of Bob, which was a, I believe a, a a famous mistake that just got worked mm -hmm. into um, um, the, the the mythology of the show. That's how the pilot ends. Who found the locket heart, um, half of the heart, um, um, in, in the forest and who, who has it? And why is Sarah having a vision of this and freaking out what, what does it mean? Now, 
in the international edition, yes, we are watching Laura, we're watching Sarah Palmer, and she's having a fitful dream slash vision. But instead of having this, um, or just having this vision of, of, of what's happening in the woods, what she very specifically has this vision of, is her a, a recollection of her running up the stairs to Laura Palmer's room, as we saw earlier in the episode, looking for Laura. And you know, earlier in the episode when we saw her do this, she looks around, um, but doesn't see anything and runs back down. But now in this vision that she's having here, um, uh, um, um, she is um, recalling seeing someone in Laura's room. She recalls seeing Bob like hiding behind the, uh, her, her bed. And, um, and, and, and so what, what ends up happening after that in this, in this uh, to, to be brief, I'll try to be brief because I can go on <laughs> forever about this, I think. But what ends up happening is that Leland ends up calling Lucy uh, Lucy and, um, and and Andy are at home and they're playing musical instruments and getting ready for a, a night of nookie in bed when all of a sudden Leland calls and says, hey, um, I think that my wife has remembered seeing the killer in our house this morning. You should maybe <laughs> tell Sheriff Truman about this. Um, and so uh, Lucy calls Sheriff Truman and, and, and Sheriff Truman says, hey, let's get the police sketch artists over to... Uh, to uh, to to the Palmers and get a sketch of what this killer looks like. Meanwhile, Lucy, why don't you call um, uh, let Agent Cooper know? Cut to Agent Cooper. He's having a very fitful slumber um, up at the Great Northern, and um, he's awoken by a phone call. But it's not Lucy. It's a mysterious man that we would later know as the One Arm Man, and basically says something really sinister. And, and, and says a bunch of details about the other murders that have been committed prior to Laura Palmer that only someone who was familiar with these murders would know. And he basically tells Cooper, hey, come to the hospital. I have some information to share with you. Cooper hangs up, the phone rings again. It's Lucy, like, okay, we're on. Like, you know, Sarah Palmer's remembering the killer. I just got a call from someone who says, I know where the killer is. We're all going to the hospital. They go to the hospital. At the hospital, they find the one-armed man kind of like hiding, lurking in the shadows um, in, in a part of the kitchen, part of the hospital. And, and, and Cooper and, and Sheriff Truman like do a little interrogation with him. And this scene is most famously, um, this is in, in, what happens there here is that the one-armed man ends up kind of um, uh, telling the story about him and Bob and does the famous kind of through the darkness of future past, the magician <laughs> one chance out between two worlds, firewalk with me. I, you know, that, that whole thing footage that we um, um, uh, would end up being incorporated into the um, third or second episode, depending on how you're numbering them um, in, 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 in Cooper's dream of the original series series. So anyway, the one our man basically says is the guy that you're looking for is a guy named Bob. He's a bad dude. He's a drifter. We used to do bad stuff together, but then I saw the face of God and uh, like, uh, and I cut off my arm and um, now I'm good. And now I'm opposed to Bob and now I'm kind of waiting for him to come out, blah, blah, blah. It's all very mysterious and incredibly insanely creepy um, and super sinister. And the casting of that actor as a one arm man, is just brilliant because it completely saves 
the utter ridiculousness of, of, <laughs> of, of this because these 20 minutes are designed to solve a mystery that was never meant to be solved, bring an end to, to, to this. So it's basically like, oh, this, this, this murder mystery that you're trying to solve, Agent Cooper and Sheriff Truman, oh, the killer, he's down in the basement of the hospital right now. Just go arrest him. <laughs> the, 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 the mood and the his the the actor it just it, it completely works it is it is weird it is sinister it is super creepy something terrible is about to happen they go downstairs in the subterranean basement of the hospital and there is bob and he has set up this little shrine of a circle of candles around a little um a, a little uh uh, a little pile of dirt and there's something on the pile of dirt and I forget. Um, and he's just being all weird and creepy and out of his mind and Cooper and Sheriff Truman kind of confront him and um, they kind of say, well, what are you doing down here? And he ends up talking, kind of going off on this riff about him and Mike and how much he enjoyed singing with Mike and stuff like this. And then he says, um, Hey, um, I'm going to get you with my death bag and I promise you that I will kill again. And at that moment, um, Mike, the one-armed man, suddenly bursts down into the basement and says something like, like hell you will, um, <laughs> pulls out a gun and blows Bob away. Why Mike, the one-armed man, just didn't blow Bob away like maybe <laughs> many minutes earlier, why he needed like Cooper and Truman there to do this. I don't know, but like, but, 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 uh, but Bob is shot, he dies, and then Mike completely has a breakdown. It's as if kind of like killing Bob has a, a, a reciprocal, like symbiotic effect where it causes him pain too when he collapses in a heap. Um, and Cooper and Sheriff Truman are just standing there going, what the hell just happened? <laughs> And um, Cooper is looking at the candles with these really sad eyes and he sees a little breeze blowing at the, at the, at, at the flames and he knows they're about to go out and he goes, make a wish. And the candles blow out. And that's technically the end of the story, except that fade up on 25 years later. Um, and Cooper, um, Kyle McLaughlin and terrible old age makeup but let's just roll with it is in the red room of the black lodge with uh the man from the other place let's rock he says backwards and he sits down and there's there's laura palmer sitting there too and uh this is me rubbing my hands because that's what the man from the other place is doing um and he's rubbing his hands and all of a sudden he touches hands with laura palmer and then he rubs his hands again and all of a sudden a weird bird-like shadow flies behind them and, and, <laughs> i love that bird shadow so, I saw, much. <laughs> so much same thing here and then they just start talking uh you know like are you laura palmer sometimes i feel like her but my arms bend back and then like you know that gum you chew is gonna come back in style and where I come from, the birds sing a pretty song and there's always music in the air and then the jazz music begins and the man from the other place dances and then like Laura Palmer tells Agent Cooper a secret, maybe tries to kiss him and then they kind of have a laugh and then it's just phase out on, you know, fade out on, 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 on dancing man from any other place. And that's it. And so we, 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 if, 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 if this is the first time you're ever hearing about this or this summary of this ending, you, you'll recognize that a lot of those elements were used and edited in a different way 
um, and used differently in, again, episode three of the original series. But yeah, that was the international version of the pilot. That was the alternate ending that gave an ending to the pilot experience. Um, in this version of the story, the murder of Laura Palmer was committed by a very sinister drifter dude who is a something of a serial killer um, who preys on the weak um, and that he used to be in a partnership with another similarly mysterious and sinister seeming man who is trying to redeem himself um, and um, who has been trying to find Bob, wait for him to resurface um, to get some kind of moment where he puts Bob out of his mis mystery. There's definitely, they feel like supernatural demonic characters. Yes. Um, it's definitely shot in a very heightened reality way, um, but, but nothing overtly supernatural. They could, you could easily explain their behaviors by being completely just stoned out of their mind and psychotic um, <laughs> um, and very poetic. As a series of Lynchian scenes and, um, and uh, on a filmmaking level, Technically, these moments are not canonical, <laughs> you know, like, like this ending didn't happen in, 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 in what we know to be Twin Peaks. But these, in terms of like, these actually, this, this bit of film, this 15 to 20 minutes is actually some of my favorite Twin Peaks stuff ever made. Like, it's so evocative. It's so sinister. It is so powerful. And in some ways, it really kind of even really puts a fine point on this version of Agent Cooper that we've been talking about in this rewatch. This agent version of Agent Cooper that is like really attracted to mystery and is like, um, uh, and, and, and has these sort of these edges to it. Like, because there is this real feeling of disappointment I, I, I get watching him as, 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 as this whole, the whole this whole mystery suddenly slips away from him um, uh, with these two weird characters kind of playing out their drama between them. Mike comes in and shoots Bob, and 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 they both seem you know like Bob dies and Mike kind of collapses into insanity, and you get the sense that like a Cooper's probably really disappointed because he had so many questions about everything here that are never going to get answered because they've been lost in the death of this monster and the madness of his former accomplice. But B, I think he was really looking forward to putting down some steaks and <laughs> Twin Peaks and hanging out for a while with the trees and the coffee and the pie and yeah. all that. Yeah. And then kind of like unraveling all the mysteries and secrets of this town. But it's all over now. He's got to shuffle off back to Philadelphia, and uh, and 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 that's it. And um, and and it kind of captures this sort of like. So the idea then that this, yeah, you get the sense of a of a guy who is attracted dangerously to mystery, and when it's not in his life, it's like oh, what, what, you know. So and yeah. then the, the the coda of twenty five years later that he's trapped in a room with Laura Palmer and these mysterious entities kind of also kind of speaks to that kind of like, whoa, wait, wait, how did you land in this place? Like, didn't you put this mystery in this town behind you, Agent Cooper, and move on with life? No, apparently not. Um, but, you know, anyway. Well, Jeff, uh, first of all, let me just say, seeing you and hearing you do a speed run through the Red Room scene, uh, almost word for word and moment for moment, uh, it's, it, it's the equivalent of like seeing someone do a speed run on Dark Souls. I'm just very impressed. <laughs> 
very impressed with how you managed to uh, pull all of that out. Uh, but, you know, it speaks to, um, you know, I love what you said about just the series of Lynchian moments in this international ending. There's a reason why so much of it was reconstituted into uh, the third episode, into the kind of dream that Cooper has at the end. Um, there's a reason why, in a really interesting way, this international ending and its existence with what the show would become as we've been saying everything else in the pilot it leads so interestingly into um you know the return even the fact that um you know the credits start rolling yes uh, you know uh, created by mark frost and david lynch those words appear as Laura is kind of whispering to um, agent to Dale Cooper. And as we all know, at the end of part 18 of Twin Peaks, the final image that we have so far, maybe forever of Twin Peaks is Laura Palmer, the red rube whispering something to Dale yes. Cooper as the credits are rolling. And, you know, even, um, you know, even the fact that, uh, you know, Lynch was sort of already even vaguely visualizing um, everything that we'd seen in the pilot as somehow connecting to this realm, somehow connecting to this more obviously um, supernatural and strange and deeply insidious. And, you know, in, 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 the, in the performances of Bob and in One Armed Man, just incredibly upsetting. Um, you know, it's it's remarkable because, uh, you know, obviously some of that stuff would appear just two episodes later, but it still feels like this big jump into everything that we'd come to associate with the Black Lodge aspect of Twin Peaks, this stuff that would come to really dominate the show later on, but that was not present at the start. So it's just, yeah. it is, it, it's funny that, you know, it doesn't feel that different, even yes. though, even though, as you were saying, you know, the, it is. Uh, it makes me think of that old uh, Marvel comic book, What If, where it was always this kind of like, you know, each issue would take some famous milestone moment from Marvel history and kind of say, what, what would have happened if it had gone a different way? And yeah, I'm so taken with what you're describing that it's kind of like poor Dale Cooper you know, this person who was supposed to have all these great adventures in Twin Peaks, he's just kind of stuck here being like, what the heck was going on here with these two? These two dudes were really up to some interesting stuff, but I guess I'll never really understand it. I will say, to, to think about Kyle MacLachlan, who, God, would just do so much great work with this character in, in future years and does so much great work here. But to think about him kind of finding the character, Something about his reading of the line, make a wish, it just feels very like almost like 90s action hero-y to me. <laughs> and, and just, and, and, you know, the, the fact he says make a wish right before the candles get blown out. Um, I just, but, but I, I really do enjoy that. I, I enjoy how this, this international ending, um, you know, it's, it's painting in all these different uh, colors that, you know, in some ways really would lead into stuff directly in the show that would follow yeah. that year and in other ways would lead into stuff that happened in the return. So I, totally. I'm, just, I'm just very taken with that. As you said, there's, there's great stuff here. And not for nothing, the Andy and Lucy scene is great. <laughs> it's totally great. <laughs> and, and, and even like, you know, Kimmy, Kimmy Robertson's reactions on the phone, she seems to be almost standing outside of the international <laughs> ending and just being like, really? Like, she, 
she saw the killer in her room. <laughs> like, I just, that's, 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 <laughs> totally. it's, it's, there's, there, there is that kind of awareness of this probably isn't going to make it to air. Ultimately, totally. but, um, but it is, it is interesting. Certainly, uh, you know, just to think of the jump to the red room and, you know, the Chiron 25 years later and how that would become so important later. It's, yeah. it, it goes back to something we were saying earlier. Maybe it speaks to my overall experience of the pilot that like, you know, there are things about the return that, you know, I love and, uh, you know, it's very different from the pilot, very different from the show. And I like that they felt that need, but more and more I watch the pilot. I'm like, no, actually Lynch and Frost really took seriously the stuff in the pilot and took seriously the ideas there and, you know, moved it forward in their own fascinating ways. And I just think that I, I, I guess I was hoping for that or, or I, I didn't know if I would experience that, but certainly I felt that in such a big way during this whole rewatch. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. Um, Jeff, uh, we could talk for hours and hours about Twin Peaks and indeed we have, and, and indeed we will continue to do so. Um, anything else from the pilot you wanted to kind of shout out any other moments that felt kind of extra special to you? Um, and let me just lead into one, cause I know it was a big favorite of both of us, but uh, Harriet Hayward, <laughs> real, <laughs> really really popped the blossom of the night the full flowering of the night just another little great character moment that uh you know seems seems to be the ultimate moment for that character but i i, I could have used 10 more seasons of that oh yeah i, I told you harriet hayward like <laughs> where, where she ends up like you know like solving mysteries and falling <laughs> footsteps yeah no I, I totally saw that yeah you know just captivated by 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 so much in it all over again is it the greatest pilot ever like it's certainly in that conversation um and um but it's still like a, an indelible like landmark piece of work and and i'm 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 really like as our conversations progressed like it really feels like it is maturing into like a real timeless singular piece um, that is, you know, obviously the start of an, an amazing, weird landmark saga in television, um, but is remains this um, very special thing unto itself. And yeah. I, I feel like that's what I really connected with. Yeah, um, it is. It is remarkable that like it feels as if its legacy has only been enhanced. Um, you know, I. I find that more and more as the years pass, I find more people who've really discovered the return or just like, you know, more people, more TV creators that, that I talk to who've been really inspired by it, who've sparked to it in some really interesting ways. And I think that, you know, the return as a, as a kind of envoy back to what made this pilot so great. Um, I don't know. I, I wonder more and more if 10, 20, 30 years from now, you know, I'm always kind of, interested to see how as you were kind of indicating some things do kind of age and grow as the years pass and that is certainly true of this pilot um jeff uh it's been a you know it's been a nice break from uh some of the terrors that are facing the world right now yes i i I hope that our listeners feel the same way uh it's no longer your job jeff but i'm always i'm always interested to hear what are you watching right now? What would you recommend people watch? What's out there that you're kind of enjoying, either new or stuff that you're kind of revisiting during this uh, during this time of, of social isolation? I've been reading a lot more than watching anything. Um, I, uh, I I I I'm, I'm a cliche, but I, I have been reading Albert Camus' The Plague. I know that sounds <laughs> so like corny. No, um, good but for except you. that. The book is awesome. Like the yeah. book is beautiful, line for line. I, I like 
the first 60 pages, it feels like, like, oh, is he writing about right now? Because it just feels like um, there's a lot of just really meaningful stuff in here. Um, and it's, and it's, uh, it's actually really spoken to me quite a bit um, as I've kind of been dealing with various themes and fears and, um, and, um, and, and, urges to help, but also being kind of like, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, defeated by the whole thing. So anyway, the plague. Awesome. Um, yeah, that's what I've yeah. been reading. Um, on the TV front. Um, I have been, um, watching Westworld, a longtime favorite. Um, uh, um, uh, listeners, you should know that like when, when, when Darren and I are not talking about Twin Peaks on, on <laughs> You're usually talking either pretty much about Westworld. So I've been kind of like, uh, like, like back deep into Westworld and kind of experiencing the new season. And I'm just going to reserve my opinion right now on that. Other than like, uh, I thought the Maeve episode in particular was um, exactly the space that I love Westworld being in. Um, so, um, and I'm looking forward to seeing kind of like where it's going. Um, and, and uh, so that's kind of what I'm watching. I've been work, trying to work on some stuff. Um, I, the other thing that I would say is um, I know that we're, I, a, a, a I've been trying to rewatch a lot of movies lately, um, catching up on a lot of film. And I know we're all talking about that great movie, you know, that, that, that movie Contagion yeah. um, from several years ago. But I would like to recommend another sort of plague adjacent movie that, I, that is um, one of my favorite movies ever. Um, and it's a more kind of existential and, 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 in, and in some ways very Lynchian, um, which is the Todd Haynes film Safe, um, yeah. the movie that he made with Julianne Moore um, right after his sort of big breakout, uh, Sundance breakout with um, uh, Poison. Um, but um, Safe is a very odd movie about a person feeling profoundly alienated from uh, from uh, every aspect of American life and getting sick from it. Um, and um, it is more metaphorical, but it's also just very literally what it's about. Um, and it, uh, I, it's, I feel like it's kind of off the nose of our movement, but at the same time, incredibly resonant in terms of our very unsettled time all over again. Um, yeah. Safe is very much a movie about its time. Um, it was made in the mid nineties about, really about the eighties. Um, but it feels, um, very relevant today. So well, been, that's what I've been watching. Yeah. Well, and you know, what's good about safe. It's funny. I hadn't really thought of it in the Lynchian context before, but it almost feels like a movie about a woman who seems to be slowly realizing how lynchy in her world is. Um, but, yeah. uh, but the other good thing about safe is that it's, I think it's kind of really great viewing for right now because, um, you know, what I think everybody is feeling, the, the kind of terror um, mixed with this just I incredible sense of tension and, and lack of clarity and uncertainty. Um, you know, we're, we're feeling that for a reason because there's a global pandemic that is, you know, tormenting our entire species. Um, what's striking about Safe is that Julianne Moore, as the lead character, she's feeling that, and things are kind of normal. <laughs> right. It's kind of a, I, like, like I, I'm not going to say that that's like, that's a nice feeling, but it, I, I don't know. It's, it's very interesting to see that 
mood conjured up specifically for a character who, you know, all around her, things seem normal, uh, albeit in a way that is ultimately kind of freaky. So I, 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 I'm very taken with that as, as like, a recommendation. What if our toxic culture was literally toxic? Yes. You know? Yeah, and, yeah, and, exactly. And, 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 and that's ends up, I think, you know, in not so many words, ends up kind of becoming the premise of that movie. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I thought, see, it's funny, when you were talking about existential and vaguely Lynchian, I thought you were going another way, because um, in honor of the late, great uh, uh, Max von Sydow, uh, I, I recently rewatched The Seventh Seal. Seventh Seal? Oh, boy. <laughs> Jeff, talk about a fun viewing experience in the midst of a, a major global infectious nightmare. But uh, <laughs> that movie set during the Black Death. I mean, I'll, I'll just say uh, it's a lot more visceral than it used to be. <laughs> sure, right. I, I definitely don't experience it from the sort of like, you know, ah, it's, it's Bergman, it's theatrical, it's kind of set in a slightly, you know, mystical world. Like, no, it seems like it's set outside. Um, mm. But uh, that's an interesting view experience. On the TV front, uh, I mentioned it earlier, but Better Call Saul is having a hell mm. of a year right now. And even um, this is the year where I think in a strange way, what I've loved about Twin Peaks, what I love about Twin, the Twin Peaks movie and The Return, it has a weird crossover with what I'm liking about this season because in some ways Better Call Saul has never been more itself and more set off from Breaking Bad. In other ways, you're seeing things move towards the Breaking Bad space um, in an interesting way I've never really seen before uh, in a prequel. So I'll definitely call that out. Also, everybody, uh, DuckTales is back and that's always, and that's always a fun watch. So, so scope that out. Um, Jeff, uh, where can people find you? Uh, where can they experience your projects? Uh, everybody, if you have not, make sure you go check out that show, Watchmen, that uh, earned a little bit of acclaim uh, in no small part due to Jeff's contribution to it uh, when it aired last year on HBO. Mm. But uh, Jeff, uh, uh, anything else that uh, people should be aware of right now? Um, you can still find me on Twitter, at EW Doc Jensen. I'm still trading off that EW name. Uh, <laughs> proud EW alumni. You're um, still you're you're still classing it up, man. You're, you're yeah. St- <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. At EW Doc Jensen. Um, and yeah, I mean, um, that's um, I'm I'm working on some things right now. I'm working on a on a graphic novel, which we're in the process of editing and getting drawn, and hopefully we'll be able to talk about that soon and some other things that hopefully I can talk about later. And um, but yeah, keep them busy. That's great. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Darren Franich and doing all kinds of writing for EW the magazine and on the website. Um, Just wanted to say to all of our listeners, uh, you know, it's always fun me and Jeff getting together to talk about Twin Peaks and uh, whenever we do it, uh, people always seem to still want to hear us do it, which is really, really nice. It's, it's, uh, you know, Twin Peaks, as an experience is something that I really cherish and getting to talk about it with Jeff and getting to talk about it with uh, people who love the show and, and love to think about it and love to revisit it. Um, it's really kind of, it's kind of been the great pleasure of my, of my entire professional life. So, um, you know, we're always honored to be able to uh, chat about it here with each other and with you. Um, and, uh, you know, right now is, such a crazy time and we hope that everybody is doing okay. We're, we're thinking about everybody's families right now. We're thinking about everybody's friends right now. Um, you know, uh, 
me and Jeff recording this, uh, you know, I, I, I like to think it's an ongoing, uh, at least 25 year experience. So <laughs> I, I, I hope that uh, when we record our, our next episode, um, things are going to be a lot different and yeah. uh, we'll be able to uh, look back and uh, look ahead and see that we can kind of make things better. But um, we're thinking of, we're thinking of everybody right now. Yeah. And, uh, we hope that uh, ev that everybody is doing okay out there.